0: Thank you so much for doing this, Avi. I really appreciate it.
1: Uh yeah, just happy to help.
0: All right. So you've got everything together, everything yep. you need?
1: Yep, I do. I do. I do.
0: Okay. Um great. Well, I'm gonna head off. Leave you to it.
1: Thanks. Ugh. Okay. Okay, okay. Um listeners, Alex has been working super hard lately, and so he can take a small rest. He finally let me post an episode. The thing is I don't actually have anything. I'm sorry, okay? I just I just kept procrastinating and playing Pokemon and it just it just snuck up on me. Right. What can I do for an hour? Uh let's see. Okay, there's some books around here. Um Ellie Engel saves herself. Shoot, we already did an episode on that. Um Huh. This could be something. Tales, by some guy named Erasmus Gould. Worth a shot, I guess. There's all kinds of crazy stuff here. Aliens, werewolves, witches, secret foundations. And I'm sure I'll find some way to tie this all up. I don't know. Some interview with, like, a professor or something. Okay, um... This one's called Skalagrimmer. In ancient Norway, around the year 850, there was a man named Olver. Olver is a smart, smart, well-connected farmer.
0: He's doing well for himself, and people admire him. But there is a bit of a problem.
2: Everyone says about him that every day towards the evening, he grows bad-tempered, and, and you don't want to speak to him or, or cross him in the night.
0: It's okay, though. He goes to bed early and gets up early. But still... People called
2: him Kveldover, which means night wolf. And they said that he was a shapeshifter. He was very shape-strong or very shifty. I mean,
0: that's what people said.
2: But who knows?
0: In any case, for a long time, Ulver's been feuding with the King of Norway. Eventually, the feud culminates in this one big battle. Kveldover and his son and their men decide to attack one of the king's big ships. There are over 50 men on the ship. And so together
2: they board the ship. And Kveldover in particular, when he boards the ship, he seems to go into like a a frenzy. He becomes frenzied like a wild animal. Um, And some of his men, they also go into this frenzy. And together they sweep from one side of the ship to the other, They're unstoppable. No one can, no one can touch them. And together they kill all 50 men and they throw them into the sea, leaving only a couple of survivors to send the message.
0: It had been said of those men who were shapeshifters that they go berserk.
2: And they become so strong in this state that they're completely untouchable.
0: But once the battle frenzy passes, they lose all their strength. And this is what happened with Kveldofer. So he calls over his son and his men and says, I don't usually feel this worn out. I'm completely drained.
2: This might be the end for me. And he goes into such a state of weakness that he passes away soon after.
0: Years go by. Because of the bad blood between him and the king, Kveldolver's son Skalagrimmer has to leave Norway and go to Iceland.
2: He sets up his own farm there in Iceland, and he
0: starts a family. He has two sons. One of them is Egil. One day, Skalgrimur and Egil, and one of Egil's friends, Thord, are out playing a ball game.
2: And Egil and his friend Thord are on one side, and Skalgrimur is on the
0: other. Egil and Thord are doing pretty well. They're definitely ahead. But the game goes into the evening. It starts to get dark. And suddenly, Skalagrimer
2: now has the upper hand. He seems to be getting stronger and stronger as the sun sets and it gets darker. And he, he's also getting more violent. The game is getting more aggressive. It's
0: getting more dangerous. It only gets worse. Suddenly, Skalagrimer grabs Thord and throws him to the ground.
2: So hard that it crushes him.
0: And he dies.
2: And then he turns on his son. He turns on Agatha.
0: And he's coming at him, driven by this rage that somehow grew out of a ball game. when a servant woman appears at the top of the hill. She was Egil's foster mother. And she also
2: knows a little bit of the magic arts. She's a full muk. She's very wise in the ways of magic. She's very crafty.
0: She shouts at Skala You are
2: shapeshifting now, Skala Grimmer. Or maybe a better translation would be you're you're becoming an animal, Skala Grimmer, at your son.
0: Skalagrimmer hears her, turns from Egil, and goes after her instead. She runs toward a cliff, and rather than letting the monstrous Skalogramer tear her apart, she leaps off the cliff into the water. And Skalogramer throws a huge rock down on top of her.
2: Neither she nor the giant boulder are ever seen again.
0: Egil and his father don't say a word to each other about what just happened.
1: And in fact, they don't speak to each other at all. for Months, months. afterward. Jeez, that's spooky. When was this book published? Whatever. This next story is called... The Skeleton Harvester. The creature loped down the sidewalk, drawing the eyes of each pedestrian.
3: I would say, like, the number one reaction is, what the,
1: fuck? <laughs> what the
3: Like people screaming, what the f-? or like asking, like, what is that? Sleep
1: paralysis demon, I think, is the best way to put it.
0: That's so scary, you shouldn't do that anymore, ever again.
3: People always think that I'm using a voice modulator, and, I, and I'll usually point at my throat or at my chest and like, yep, continue to like, gibber at them in skeleton tongue, so they understand that, no, that's me. Tall
1: and scary and kind of robotic. What's up, Todo bien, brother.
0: For me, I describe it as the bodyguard. You're
4: my, you're my sole animal.
3: Living art. Yes,
1: and so friendly.
3: It's like, I've always sympathized with like the monsters in monster movies, (laughs) it's just like, what? It's like, it's an alien, like dude, you have like no respect for like the first time encountering extraterrestrial life.
1: Meet Riley Donaldson. He's around seven feet tall, with a pale, owl-shaped face things that look like feathers plume from his head, and he carries a sash of canisters that help him breathe in our atmosphere. Riley likes to take walks around Bloomington every so often. You could say he's a people watcher. So, here we are, on a walk in the night. Oh. His dogs don't seem to like it. During the day, Riley works for IU's University Collections as an exhibition assistant/slash preparator. He makes the bases, hangers, and stands that support various works of art. He also likes movies and TV shows, especially science fiction and anime. Uh,
3: stuff like Alien, Aliens, Predator. Um, when I was like really, really young, before I could watch like the scary stuff, you know, I loved movies like ET, um, Short Circuit.
1: Basically, giant space robots with lasers and highly intelligent intergalactic aliens, also with lasers. Which I guess makes sense, given that, according to him, he's a couple million years old. So, wait, so where are you from? Oh, <laughs> The pointing to the sky. <laughs> Riley is from two places. He was born in Indiana which is on Earth. And the other is sort of a long story.
3: The null species, the skeleton harvester, is an alien known as the null species. And they are unfathomably long-lived, super intelligent, telepathic aliens.
1: Instead of Riley, you would probably know him as the skeleton harvester named for the calcium it needs to survive.
3: Bones, super high in calcium. The creature has been seen, like, dragging, like, bones in, like, dead corpses. Like, not not human corpses, but, like, deer and, like, animals.
1: Don't worry, he's no threat to humans. I'd ask for advice, but, I don't know, advice in your native tongue.
3: Eliminate greed, eliminate war.
1: So why, why does Riley enjoy strapping on stilts and scaring pedestrians? Well, the short answer is,
3: I'm an adult and I live in America and so I'm gonna wear what I want. (laughs) And if that means I wanna be a, a cryptid and walk around and as long as I'm not hurting anybody, then tough. There's also a much
1: longer response. Let's think of it this way. Riley plus costume equals skeleton harvester, right? That would make sense, as sensical as a millions of years old alien can be. But how do I say this? This is all much less A to B. So can you put into sort of a percentage of like your view as a whole, what percentage is skeleton harvester?
3: Hmm. at this point probably like <laughs> it's getting it's getting close to like
1: 50/50 riley is the skeleton harvester yeah but the skeleton harvester is also riley like the two sides of a coin
3: a lot of Big religions talk about the everlasting soul and, and stuff like that. I don't particularly believe in souls. I don't believe that souls exist. I believe that humans are quote unquote intelligent mammals.
1: Riley describes himself as a transhumanist which is basically improving humanity with technology
3: stuff from like full synthetic humans to like augmented humans to like hybrid humans with like you know whatever dna you want spliced into you if you want some some uh, extra glowy bits you could get some some cuttlefish dna spliced into you you could have some bioluminescence like in your skin which would be cool
1: you can't really get cuttlefish dna in 2024 At least not in the Midwest. But Riley was drawn to the next best thing.
3: All of the sci-fi anime that you could probably mention. Sense of humor comes from stuff like Ghostbusters and uh, The Goonies. So like I'm like super into this like goofy weird parody and just like fun for fun's sake.
1: He got interested in art and sci-fi and anime. And manifesting his futuristic dreams into styrofoam and cardboard.
3: Even before I was in college, I was like scaring kids at my mom's house here in town uh, in her neighborhood like every year for Halloween. And like it became like a tradition. And we'd do the yard up really crazy. and I would s- start making props and stuff for the yard. So like I started with like you know, carving uh, EPS foam and making your own tombstones super easy and I went to IU and just like took as many art classes as they would let me take basically <laughs> uh, and loved the, the the creative freedom of sculpture I loved I loved that I could go into sculpture classes and the teacher was like make what you want and justify it
1: Transhumanism is also like um
3: As lovely as the human form can be and as great as as it can be, I realize its limitations. and I can see those limitations. And I see the potential for technology to help us supersede those limitations and become something more than human.
1: Have you ever thought about what it means to be a person? To be this strange little animal that's walking around a damp collection of dust that's hurtling through space.
3: Sentience is a strange biological loop, and our brains are nothing more than, like, the most sophisticated biological computers that we have encountered.
1: Does that make you feel trapped, cornered into a strange little creature scuttling around the surface of an even stranger planet?
3: I don't particularly think that there's, like, souls or heaven or hell or or afterlife, um... So I think it's vitally important that we make the most of our very limited time on this earth. <laughs> uh, at most, you know, we, we got 80 to 90 years. If we're lucky, we get 100. If we're super lucky and we're healthy. So we have that much time to impress upon others around us the importance of using that time valuably and in a way that's positive, um, for the people around you, people in your life, and for yourself,
1: I think we can all appreciate feeling stuck, stuck in a job, a hometown, the closet. So we have stories, we have video games, music, books, giant robots fighting for alien supremacy,
3: and we have cryptids like Riley. Like people always ask why, and I'm like, why not? That's like my number one comeback. Why not? (laughs) I'm having fun. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm getting great exercise.
1: The reporter turned around for one last question. Do you have any last words, I guess? Love and And peace. peace. Thank you, she said. As she walked off into the night. And the reporter was never seen again. Okay, that's kind of... Dark. Why do we even have this? You know what? Content is content. This next one's called, um, Katla and Gerither. Once, way back when, there were two
0: two rival rival witches.
2: witches. Their names are Katla and Gerither.
0: They're neighbors.
2: And there's a young student who wants to learn from Gerither. He goes every day to her house and takes lessons.
0: But to get to Garyther's house every day, he has to pass Katla's house. And Katla is a a much
2: less popular person. She's harder to get along with. People don't like her. She's difficult.
0: And every day when he passes Katla's house, she comes out and tries to convince him to be her student. And not go on to Garyther's house. Katla's argument to the student isn't just about curriculum. There are sexual overtones, too.
2: She'll say, like, she's an old woman. She, you know, she can't give you what you want. And Gunnlager says, well, you're an old woman, too. (laughs) Um, And just goes right on by.
0: Then, one night, the young student is on his way home from there's house. Katla comes out again and warns him that he'd better spend the night at her house.
2: She says, there are many night-faring spirits.
0: He ignores her and continues on his way. But the next morning, he's found badly injured.
2: Something has torn up and bloodied his back and shoulders. In some places, he's been cut to the bone. He has been witch-ridden.
0: He's been attacked by a nightmare.
2: A witch spirit, kind of like flying in spirit form or in animal form. Katla then accuses Gerither of being a kveldritha, a night rider, or a, you know, like night-attacking witch.
0: People believe her, and they bring Garyther to court. But Garyther has connections. She brings witnesses. These are important people, and they convince the court that she is no night witch. She's fine, nothing to worry about. And things go back to the way they were. Cutler and Garyther's rivalry has quieted down.
2: But it's like simmering.
0: And then Cutler's son, Otter, starts to get into trouble. He gets on the wrong side of some powerful people, and Cutler hears they're coming to arrest him.
2: Cutler says to her son, like, OK, the men are coming. Sit here in front of me while I spin. And so the men who are coming to arrest Odder come into Katla's house, and they just see Katla spinning wool with her distaff. So they leave. But then when they get a little ways away from her house, they think to themselves, wait, was that was that a distaff? Is that what we actually saw? I, I think that was Odder. So they go back to the house again. But this time, they just see Katla and a goat, and they go away again. And they get a little ways away, and they think, No, I, I realize now that goat was Otter. And they go back a third time, and all they see is Katla and a pig. And so they, they go away again, and the third time they decide, No, we need, we need uh, a magic worker to fight a magic worker. So they go and get Garether.
0: On her way out the door, she grabs a sealskin bag.
2: As Garretther walks in, immediately she goes straight to Katla and she puts the sealskin bag over Katla's head to obscure her eyes so that she can't see and, and use that to do magic. And then they're able to capture and arrest Otter.
0: They find them both guilty, Katla and Otter. And the punishment is death. Katla and Otter are executed. Otter is...
2: I think, hanged, and Katla is stoned
1: to death with the bag over her head. The, the execution ex- of a witch. Uh, that's a lot of spirits and witches and murders. Um, I think I need a break. Welcome back to Interstates, I'm Avi Forrest. I'm reading this strange book of dark tales I found in our recording studio. This next one looks pretty cool. It's called Secure, Contain, Protect. Back in the ancient year of 2008, the foundation began its archive. Foundation Database Department of Containment Secure Facility Dossier Site Identification Code USINBL-SITE-81 Referred to in the rest of document as Site-81 The first anomalous activity documented at Site-81 was SCP-2812 And several humanoid entities which jaws stretched open, severe cerebral hemorrhaging. Site-81 contains living quarters and dormitories for over 1,000 personnel, a robust Keter-class containment wing, and several subterranean wings over an area of 9.69 square kilometers. The public, however, is not privy to the function of Site-81. In fact, few in Indiana have any idea such a place exists. The approved cover story for the facility is not one of a state-of-the-art research base, but a Bloomington Municipal Water Treatment Facility.
4: These sites are like big, I think of them like big jails, right, for uh, spooks inspectors, right? The monsters and things that make you go crazy and whatever else, they take all these things, they put them in boxes, they put them underground. That's what a
1: site is. Remember Hector? From Hector Loves Water Treatment. How I see myself is trying to be more
2: knowledgeable. In that way, I will be like one of the best.
1: We did a whole story about his work at the Bloomington Water Treatment Plant. Sorry, I meant the SCP Foundation Site-81. And you know what? It was disappointing. We had this whole episode about the water treatment plant. But I guess the universe doesn't want us to have nice things because later on we find out it's a secret scientific organization housing some of the deadliest known phenomena.
4: Yeah, it's actually huge. Uh, You wouldn't know it just from looking at it, but it goes all the way underneath Lake Monroe. It's like got eight or nine subterranean levels. It's crazy.
1: Our entire story is shot. And listen, I don't care about how many dangerous artifacts this SCP Foundation has. I think we deserve some answers after they wrecked our coolest, most water treatment-themed episode. Thankfully, SCP author Ben Sisson has been very helpful in explaining why we're in this mess.
4: There exists, in our world, a secret paramilitary pseudo-governmental society uh, association, foundation, one might say, uh, called the SCP Foundation.
1: Okay, so we're going to explain some insane things really quickly. One, other dimensions, monsters, mind control, that's all real
4: different spooky monsters to, that you would you know pretty standard fare to haunted locations to um, cursed artifacts
1: and two it's not actually real
4: i've written about you know buildings that that hate you and uh, a lake also near bloomington that uh is full of dead bodies that might also not be dead that you know, create a compulsion effect to drag people into the
1: lake. The SCP Foundation is a massive online writing project produced by hundreds of different users. The stories primarily unfold in pieces called articles, and they're usually structured like government documents. But the format is always fluctuating with new ways to tell stories.
4: I always tell people it's kind of a mix between the Men in Black and the X-Files.
1: The SCP Foundation has become an online cult classic with a devoted fan base especially for the video game adaptations. To put this cult appeal into perspective, according to YouTube Culture and Trends, in 2019, global viewership of videos related to the SCP Foundation topped one billion views. SCPs have even influenced a major video game release. In 2019, the video game Control puts players into a strange and hostile laboratory with hallways of dangerous artifacts. By November of 2022, the game sold over 3 million units. Jeez. This thing exists
4: above and beyond governments. It simply exists so that the public can be protected uh, and kept in the dark, literally and figuratively speaking.
1: Basically, it's a secret organization designed to safeguard horrors beyond human comprehension. It's even in the name, SCP, Special Containment Procedures, but also Secure Contain Protect. Plus it's all collaborative. Meaning anyone with a good enough story can submit an entry and be immortalized in SCP canon.
4: Uh, I'm the site's number one uh, overall rated author. I've been that for like, the last three or four years, I think.
1: Ben has written dozens of articles under the name DJ Cactus and has been voted the site's top author. And that's no small feat, considering the sea of submissions the site handles.
4: Really, when it comes down to it, you really only need one good line, right? If you can do one, if you have one good line, you can do some stuff with that.
1: Ben wrote a story about Site-81, a branch of the super-secret SCP Foundation. And he chose to set it in Indiana? Yeah, you might wonder why. Why not New York or California?
4: I grew up in Plainfield, uh, on the west side of Indianapolis, near the airport.
1: The Midwest is slowly being recognized as a great setting for spooks. Stranger Things, for example, is set in Indiana. But it's still a slow process, and flyover states have always been fighting for relevance.
4: Even for somebody like me, who grew up in the most flyover of flyover states, in a flyover town, off the highway, that like, people just, you know, nobody... Nobody recognize, like people don't go to where I I grew up. Even to me, those places have so much like untapped potential for interesting stories.
1: So, yeah, I was surprised that we had a SCP Foundation headquarters set in a Bloomington water treatment plant. And you know what? It's a long story. SCP-2316. Containment class. Keter. Cognito hazard. Please repeat the following phrase slowly and clearly into your terminal microphone. I do not recognize the bodies in the water. SCP-2316 manifests as a group of human corpses floating in a small group at the surface of the water. The identities of these corpses are though DNA testing has been inconclusive. Individual instances of SCP-2316 do not act on their own, but do seem to be able to act collectively as a single unit. The individual instances of SCP-2316 are unrecognizable. And you do not recognize the bodies in the water.
4: My grandparents uh, owned, for the longest time, uh, property in French Lick, Indiana. And their property line, it was like 100 acres, but it backed up to uh, a lake.
1: Ben was born in Indiana. And much of his work focuses on capturing the feeling of wild spaces and rural towns in the Midwest.
4: This article, Bodies in the Water, Field Trip, uh, is based on that lake specifically, where, you know, we camped out there a lot when we were just kids. And you'd wake up in the morning, you go down to the lake if you wanted to go fish or something. And it would just be, I mean, just fog. And every so often you'd see things floating around out there. I was the, one of the older of several cousins. We always, you know, would, would, would jerk around. The uh, the younger cousins and talk about how
1: oh there's dead bodies out there ooh watch out. Growing up, Ben had plenty of adventures in the shadows of rural Indiana. Those experiences would inspire various tales for the SCP website.
4: A Buddy of mine, him and his family lived kind of on the outside of town, and there was a, a rock quarry, like a gravel quarry, um, near his house. We called it the gravel pit. And a couple times, you know, when I was when we were kids, we would go out there and mess around in this in this gravel pit, and just this big hole in the ground. And you know, all we were doing was going out there and blowing stuff up. Um, and so it wasn't really much of anything, but being in places like that, especially when it gets dark and when there aren't other people around, it does have a kind of liminal quality to it, where it doesn't feel like a place that people are supposed to be, or, you know, it doesn't feel like a place where you are alone, even when it's like you're very clearly by yourself.
1: The stories loosely track Ben's experiences growing up in Indiana. But they also show us a universal truth about writing fiction. It is really hard.
4: If you want to tell a story the way that a story wants to be told, it is very easy to like, fall into the cycles of self-doubt and criticism, and it can be difficult sometimes to have the confidence to expose yourself like that, especially if you're writing about your own experiences, or the experiences of people in the place where
1: you are. When I said the SCP project is collaborative, I meant that it relies on a collaborative editing process. If a story isn't successful enough, it can get taken down.
4: I mean, I came from one of those towns where, like, I was the good writer kid, right? But I hadn't really ever been challenged on that. When I started writing for the Wiki, I suddenly was having to not just, like, meet a certain quality standard or else have the work deleted, which is one of the things I, I really like about the wiki is that it has a, a like a, a self-policing deletions policy where if the community doesn't like something that you've written, they'll just delete it. If a certain percentage of people downvote a thing as opposed to upvote a thing, it just disappears forever.
1: According to the SCP website, in the decade and a half since it started, the number of articles written each year has quadrupled. It's hard to make a story stand out in all of that, even if users are just reading the new stuff. Telling stories is hard, right? For as much pressure this sort of model can exert, it does bring people together. For example, SCP-049.
4: I hated that article. The original version of it, I hated it so much. I thought it was, it was just kitschy and dumb
1: and super clowny. The story was originally made by author Gabriel Jade, but the SCP became more popular after it was rewritten with the help of DJ Cactus, or Ben. <clears throat> SCP-049 is a humanoid entity, roughly 1.9 meters in height, which bears the appearance of a medieval plague doctor. SCP-049 will become hostile, with individuals it sees as being affected by the pestilence often having to be restrained should it encounter such. If left unchecked, SCP-049 will generally attempt to kill any such individual. SCP-049 is capable of causing all biological functions of an organism to cease through direct skin contact.
4: So, that article is SCP 049. It's very famous. Uh, I wrote an article called SCP 049 J, uh, which is a joke article. It was basically a parody of that article called The Plague Fellow. Uh, and it was very much just like the Plague Doctor meme, like put into writing. Um, and it did well. It was very, yeah, I think, it, I still think it's maybe the funniest thing I've ever written. Uh, Gabriel Jade read that article and read that one of my. Yeah, I put, like, a longer-form criticism uh, of 049 together, and he eventually came back to the site and asked me if I wanted to help him rewrite it.
1: This post-revision plague doctor has become arguably one of the most recognizable faces of SCP fiction. It's the result of dedicated collaboration and creativity. But the writers don't usually get recognized.
4: Uh, there's a, a gas station near my house I saw about sometimes on my way home whenever I want to, like, grab a drink. Um, and one of the, the gas station attendants, uh, she has a young son. Um, and one time they found out that I, cause we, her and I were talking and I, I mentioned that I wrote for the website. She's like, Oh, my son loves that website. She goes, he would love to meet you. And I said, well, have you read anything on the site? And he like, I wrote, I read Oh four nine. And I'm like, I wrote over nine. And it was the coolest thing. I'd never had that moment. Cause like, this is not like, there's nothing glamorous about writing for this website. It's not like a, It's not like being Stephen King.
1: But maybe it's not about recognition. These thousands of articles are written by usernames, not recognizable people.
4: People generally don't know my real name. They know DJ Cactus uh, or Cactus or, you know, that guy. Like, they don't know Ben Sisson. That's me. That's, you know, they don't attach those two things together. So I don't walk down the street and people are like, oh, hey, you're that guy. Uh so in the rare instances where you do have that kind of feedback, that is immensely gratifying. I cannot I, I can't imagine what it's like for people who like experience that on a day-to-day basis. Like that's the kind of stuff that you would just get
1: like intoxicated on. I no nobody should have that much power. The goal of the SCP Foundation is to trick you. They want you to believe all of the anomalies, artifacts, and gods in their basement are real. But it's not mean spirited. It's play. The SCP Foundation might be a covert organization with the heavy task of saving the world, but the fiction project, the one moored in our reality, is an opportunity to play like we're kids again.
4: When I was in elementary school, uh, you know, I was like, you know, whatever, six, seven years old. Um, Out behind our elementary school was, we had a playground, and then behind that, was a very thin wood line between the back of the school and the road. I mean, it could have been more than like 200 feet. And then there's a, you know another main road behind that. Um, there's not a whole lot of interesting things that happen in a stretch of trees that thin. Uh, but there was one girl who I went to school with, and I, 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 to this day, I cannot remember her name, but I know exactly what she looked like. She had red hair. She was. Uh, at the time to be captivating and not because she had interesting ideas and she was one of those people who could look into a grove of trees that small and come up with fairy tales in a way that like I had never seen before in my life. So we were, we, we sat out there, you know, it's a pretty simple playground. It wasn't, there wasn't that much to do, but on one of the trees in this, you know, this again, very shallow wood line behind the, the playground, there was a board that had been nailed to one of those trees. Um, just you know, like a like if you were to like put a, like build a ladder into the side of a tree, just nail boards into it. There was one board up, you know, highways, whatever. Uh, and th- there's a board there, and the board, which well, is the board. I mean, there's a board had a single nail in it. Every so often, the board would spin in the wind, and it would go one way or the other, and this girl had convinced myself and half of our class that that board was put up there by a witch uh, and it was cursed, and like, the turning of the board meant something or other and, did it make any sense? Absolutely not like, I was just making stuff up but like, we were kids, and you know, she said it in a, in a compelling enough way that we were all hooked
1: Maybe not everyone's a fan of incomprehensible nightmare treasures, or psychic bodies in lakes, or plague doctors. But even if it's just for a second, forget about the water treatment plant. Think about what's underneath that sprawling complex, what's swimming down in those concrete tunnels. What needs to be secured, contained, or protected. Next time you're walking by a lake, down a deserted road, Think like you're seven again, run through the grasses, have sword fights with tree branches. Look into that abandoned building and don't just see empty space. Imagine something is watching you back. And the reporter finished her story and recorded it in her awesome, amazing, beautiful voice. The end. Eh, that one was just okay. Anyway. How much time is left? Shoot. We need time. Um, let's take a break. Welcome back to Interstates. Um These episodes usually have a theme or a or a discussion or something. Ugh, Alex is usually so good at these things. What would what would Alex do? I really wish he was here right now. But that does give me an idea. After working with him for a while, I think I can do a decent impression. <clears throat>
0: Welcome to Interstates. Yeah, um, shows, talking, um, themes. Heck yeah, I think I can do this. Let's, let's land this plane. Um, we usually have a guest. Um, whatever, let's just, let's just make someone up. A, uh, A, Adrian? Will, Will, Will Whit, Whitaker. Wh- Adrian, Adrian Whitaker sounds good. Sounds like a professor. Um, hmm. A professor of literature. Yeah. Adrian Whitaker. Okay. And Alex would probably ask them something smart. Something like, what have you figured out about how people thought about bodily stability at that time and what this shape-shifting reveals about that? This is one
2: of the things that I think is most interesting about the old Norse sources in particular is they they give us this window into a very different way of understanding embodiment and the relationship between your body and the environment that you're in. There seems to be what other scholars have called like this sort of permeability between the self and the environment where there's not like a hard and fast like physical boundary around yourself. In fact, there's a lot of continuity between what is your body and what is the environment that you're moving through.
0: Right. And that makes me curious about how much control people had. Mm. You know, like this idea of the body with its hard boundaries, I think is, you know, you're talking about like how we tend to think of ourselves, our bodies now, you know, in the 21st century. And... If you're kind of more continuous with the environment, it also suggests to me on some level you have less control. And that also seems, that question of control seems tricky in some of these stories.
2: Yeah. I think that that's, like in Egil saga, the sort of like werewolf heredity that I talked about kind of stands as a symbol of not being in control. It's that sort of chaotic element that makes Egil kind of a chaotic person in the saga difficult to be around sometimes, and it expresses that there are things that can't be controlled or can't be contained in the same way. Although I think there's a distinction to be made between, say, something like what I described in Egil's saga, where it's like there's a sort of hereditary, chaotic element in this family, and what you see in Arabigya saga with Katla and Gerither, who are described as like wise women who are crafty in terms of magic.
0: I mean what you've just described to me seems to be like a gender distinction like a gendered distinction the witches and the women have control and the men are have less control does that play out
2: Yeah I I would definitely say that that is a true observation about these
0: sagas This is making me think too about if the men are the ones who have less control over their say violence and rage On the one hand I feel like that functions as a kind of warning, potentially, watch out for men, but at the same time, it also, I think, functions as a justification or excuse, like, oh, these men who are committing this violence don't have control over themselves. Does any of that feel like it tracks or is this just my 21st century sensibility trying to put something on top of the 12th century?
2: I could see it that way. And in addition, other scholars have talked about how magic for women can be a kind of substitute for social power. So if you don't have access to different kinds of institutional power or authorized violence that the the men, especially upper-class men around you, do, and if you can't access it vicariously, like through a husband or a son... To enact that kind of violence or revenge for you, then magic can be that kind of gendered outlet that allows you to circumvent those institutions and take that power into your own hands, which also then explains why that magic can be so frowned upon and how women who use that magic are seen as threatening, because they are threatening, not just to that individual that they are taunting in the form of a seal, but also to the social order that says, no, power has to flow only
0: through men. So how does thinking about werewolves and other shapeshifters help us understand gender?
2: So the, the werewolf kind of forces us to think about what does it mean when your your inner self doesn't match your outside self or when allegedly your inner self doesn't match your outside self? So when we, we see a creature who looks like a wolf who you know, howls like a wolf, who maybe attacks like a wolf, and yet inside that creature is trying to be something else or knows itself to be something else. I, I think those questions are very applicable to ideas of gender, particularly ideas of being trans and that sort of sense of when, when people see me, they see one thing, but on the inside I, I see something else. I think that the werewolf is sometimes... It's trying deliberately to make us think about those ideas of of inside and outside, the relationship between our body and our soul. And sometimes I think it's incidentally helping us think about those things, where it's just, it's producing this model that could help us think about gender, but could also help us think about lots of different aspects of ourselves.
0: And can you actually just kind of describe what you mean by gender in the sense of how does gender... Work as something that's both kind of inside and outside, internal and external.
2: So you might say there are two main aspects of how we experience gender. There's the way that people interact with you, and that's to- that's informed by um, all of these sort of symbols of the body that we read in a gendered way. Um, so you're you're going to speak differently, or move through space differently in relationship to someone, depending on whether you perceive them as a man, as a woman, as masculine or feminine, you're going to relate to them in a different way. And so we might call that the sort of external or perceived sense of gender, a sense of gender that you get from other people and from the way that they interact with you or from what they want from you. And then on the other hand, we might say there's another aspect of gender, one that we often talk about as internal. So you might say, people see me as a woman, but I don't feel that way. Like there, there's something in me that doesn't respond to those things, or that doesn't feel that feminine things resonate with me. So that's not something that's coming necessarily from other people, but rather from a, an internal sense of who you are. And we might call that the internal aspect of identity. And these two things are always in tension with each other. I don't think either of those things 100% determines what your gender is. It's always this kind of push and pull. And that's, I think, where the metaphor of the werewolf can help us think about that. Because the, the thing that's fascinating about the werewolf is that it's both at the same time.
0: Okay, cool. Um, one concern that I'm feeling about using the werewolf to think about gender and especially like if there's a link with transness is that the werewolf is monstrous.
2: Yeah, I I definitely see where there can be a concern with like, do we want our images of queerness or images of transness to be monstrous? And to that, I would say they always have been like images of monstrosity have always been used in a variety of ways, not just werewolves to represent that and i think that there's there's obviously a negative aspect to that there's an idea that um queerness is is threatening um that it's dangerous but i think also there's there's something in there that is about how it's disruptive it's something that is in fact breaking social norms and that that can be a a good thing you know that can be a redemptive thing to smash those I, and you know uh, many other people have said that there's a sort of identification with the monster that they be- can become a positive you know really like a cool thing werewolves are cool and they they sort of represent i think how you can become something other and that can be powerful as well you know and you can you can say that that power is threatening or that power is evil or dark in some way but it can also be something that is empowering in a positive sense.
1: Adrian Whitaker is an assistant professor of literature at Eureka College. They wrote their dissertation on medieval werewolves. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in scenic Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us, or if you got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org slash interstates. And hey, if you like the show, review and rate us on Apple or Spotify. But what's even better is sharing the show with a friend. This episode of Interstates was produced and edited by me, Avi Forrest, with support from Alex Chambers, Ayabon Binder, Jillian Blackburn, Mark Schilla, Luann Johnson, Sam Scheminauer, Jay Upshaw, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our cool-as-heck executive producer is Eric Bolstridge. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Volmar. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. Special thanks this week to Adrian Whitaker, Raleigh Donaldson, and Ben Sisson, my own personal Stephen King. Time for some found sound. That was Crows in Bloomington, 2024 edition, recorded by Amy Pickard. Until next week, I am the wonderful Avi Forrest.